Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. If you have your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. This past week, um, I was at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, 17,000 of my closest friends. And you might think, wow, wow, that's a lot of people, big denominational thing. Surely some significant stuff happened. Maybe. This is the significant thing, friends, what we do when we gather together as the local church. This is the significant thing, and so I'm glad to be with you on this Lord's Day. Luke 17 is where we're going to be this morning, verses 1 to 10. Please follow along now as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus said to His disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our eternal good in Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, help us now to have ears of faith as we open your word. Please give us grace to understand and believe and obey what it is that you have revealed in Christ Jesus. Please give us grace, Father, to repent where we ought to repent, to rejoice where we ought to rejoice. Please conform our lives to the image of Christ. Please give me grace, Father, to keep me from error. Please grant all of us here in your church discernment that we would hold fast to the things that are true and that we would hold fast to them to the very end. And please encourage us, God, that as we seek to hold fast to you, you are, in fact, holding fast to us through this very same word. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. If you wanted to capture the spirit of American evangelicalism, you couldn't do much better than an old country music song by George Jones and Tammy Wynette called Me and Jesus. And yes, I am as surprised as you that I'm about to quote a country music song in a sermon. Never say never, I guess. Me and Jesus. You may have heard this song before. The chorus goes like this. Me and Jesus, we got our own things doing. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. Me and Jesus, we got our own things going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. If you wanted to capture American evangelicalism, you couldn't do much better than that. By and large, evangelicals are a me and Jesus people. As long as me and Jesus are good, then everything is all right. I don't really need the authority of a church 
or pastors. I certainly don't need any tradition. And most of all, I don't need anyone else. As long as I'm doing my part, Jesus will do His part and give me what I need and everything will be alright. Me and Jesus. That's American evangelicalism in an old country music song. But it doesn't take long to figure out that me and Jesus Christianity fails to fit with the New Testament. Our passage today in Luke 17 is a good example. As you heard in our reading just a moment ago, this text is a collection of Jesus' teaching on discipleship. And from the start, it's clear that Jesus disagrees with George Jones. Discipleship is about far more than me and Jesus. Discipleship, by definition, involves the believing community, the body of Christ, the local church. As we follow Jesus, we do so arm in arm with other Christians. So that our discipleship is tied up, at least in part, with the spiritual well-being, the spiritual health of others, and vice versa. What's more, discipleship, according to the New Testament, is not even primarily about what Jesus can do for us. As though Jesus becomes our servant and we the Master. At its core, discipleship is servanthood. We call Him Lord. He calls us servant. It's servanthood at heart. To be a disciple is to be bound to Jesus and to His Word and to His people. We serve Him by serving His church. We serve Him, not the other way around. In these ways then, that you would have to say that George and Tammy got it quite wrong. Christianity is not a me and Jesus kind of faith. It's more me and Jesus and His church kind of faith. All of us together. Discipleship, according to the New Testament, a call to servanthood. Where Christ is Lord and where we serve Him in connection with His church. And that's what we see in Luke 17, friends. It can be hard to find a coherent theme in these verses. They read more like a collection of wisdom sayings from Jesus. But perhaps the theme is simply discipleship. Discipleship. The duties that we have towards one another and towards Christ. In fact, Jesus uses that word duty at the end of the passage in verse 10. That's a word that has gotten a bad rep in some ways, but duty is an honorable idea. It's a virtuous thing to do one's duty and to do so for the right reason. So, taking off from Jesus in verse 10, what I'd like to do this morning is consider from this text three duties of a disciple. Instead of thinking about me and Jesus only, let's think about me and Jesus and others and consider the duties that we have towards one another because Jesus is Lord. There are three in this text in particular. Duty number one from verses one to four. Disciples must pursue righteousness together. Disciples must pursue righteousness together. From the start, we see that this passage is focused primarily on discipleship. Notice the audience in verse 1. And Jesus said to His disciples. That's significant. You may recall in chapter 16 that Jesus has been dealing with the Pharisees. 
rebuking them for their love of money and their failure to believe the gospel. But now in verse 1, chapter 17, the focus shifts and Jesus once more begins to teach His disciples. And the aim of Jesus' teaching is to give His disciples a biblical framework for dealing with something that is very common in the Christian life. Temptation and sin. He wants to give them a biblical framework. Indeed, Jesus' first statement is that temptation is inevitable. Notice how the Lord puts it, verse 1. And Jesus said to His disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. They're inescapable, inevitable. It's going to happen. There's all the proof that you need that there's no such thing in the New Testament as perfectionism. We're all going to be tempted to sin. Until we see Christ, we will face temptation. It is the common experience of all Christians to be tempted. We know this. But then Jesus goes in a surprising direction in the rest of the verse. He connects the fight against temptation with our responsibility to other Christians. Notice the rest of verse 1. Jesus said to His disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, the reality of temptation, it's going to come, that certainty, the certain reality of temptation does not mean that we can live thoughtlessly or carelessly towards other people. The certainty of temptation is no justification for disregarding the spiritual health of other Christians. Yes, temptation is common. It's inevitable even. But we ought to be very careful that we are not the cause of that temptation. Jesus says, woe to that person. And so this is a mark of Christian maturity. To have a careful approach in how you live in both your conduct and your teaching. Both what you do and what you say. To be careful in how you live. So you don't lead someone else into sin. Let me give you an example of what this might look like. I remember hearing a, a Christian man say once that he had developed a, a, a habit. He was very careful to not talk about sports whenever he was around this one particular friend of his. And that sounds kind of strange, considering how often guys talk about sports. Why would he do this? Well, it's because this man knew that his friend was a recovering gambling addict. And in the past, his wager of choice had been to bet on ball games. And so, out of love for his brother, this Christian man chose to just steer the conversation in different ways. Make sure they talked about different things. Do different things. Why? That seems silly. That seems like a small thing. It seems like no big deal. Yet that brother understood what Luke 17 is saying. We don't want to be the cause of temptation to anyone else. We look out for one another. That brother understood the seriousness of Luke 17. Even on things that we might think are no big deal, even on things that are good or neutral, or that we would have the freedom to engage in, even on those things, we think more of others than we do of ourselves. We ought to be looking out for the spiritual health of other Christians. Mature believers understand that the fight against temptation means being careful how you relate to your fellow Christians. It's a serious responsibility. 
If we're prone to downplay the seriousness of this responsibility, then Jesus cuts us off with an an inescapable illustration. Notice the graphic language in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Friends, that is some kind of responsibility. Jesus says it would be better to die than to lead a fellow Christian away from the Lord. It would be better to die. That little phrase, uh, that phrase, these little ones, likely refers to new believers or perhaps believers who are still maturing in their faith. And the reality is that newer Christians are often like sponges. They're ready to soak up anything, good or bad. And Jesus is saying that we have a responsibility to these little ones. We have a responsibility to one another. We have a responsibility to look out for our fellow Christians, regardless of where they are on the road of discipleship. Indeed, that responsibility is so serious, Jesus said it would be better for you to drown than to lead a fellow Christian into sin. It all comes together in a summarizing command. Notice the first clause of verse 3. This is the summary. What's the takeaway from Jesus' teaching at this point? How should we go about our Christian lives? Jesus tells us, verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. That clause goes with verses 1 and 2. Pay attention to yourselves. It's just a command to be careful about how you live. That certainly includes fighting temptation in your own life, but it also includes looking out for others, not being a source of temptation to any fellow believer. The fight against sin is so serious, I should carefully guard my life and my doctrine, both what I do and what I say. But there is a reality that sin will occur even between two Christians. What do we do then? How do we respond to our fellow believers when we do fall into temptation and when they sin against us or when we sin against them? Then what do we do then? Jesus tells us. Look at verse 3. The Lord outlines two basic responses that we ought to have towards our fellow Christians. Notice what Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's the basic outline. Repent and forgive. The two responses, generally speaking, that we have towards fellow Christians. Now, what does it mean to rebuke a fellow Christian? This is often a misunderstood and misapplied aspect of discipleship. So we need to think clearly at this point. What does it mean to rebuke a fellow believer? Well, the idea is to correct something with the purpose of bringing it to an end. Right? To correct something so that it won't happen anymore. That's key, friends. Rebuke is not aimed at calling someone out. Rebuke is not intended to shame someone or to put them down. Rebuke must never occur on the basis of hearsay or assumptions. Rather, Christian rebuke at its core is aimed at restoration. It's aimed at repentance. It's a display of love. When the sin is against us, or when the sin is observed by us, we rebuke one another in order that we will grow. And so, just just mark it down. Christian rebuke is not 
a call out. It's not a public shaming, which means, which means you can't rebuke someone online. You can't rebuke someone in anger. You can't rebuke someone through a text message. It's a display of love, according to Jesus. It's a display of love. So if our aim, when we, when we, when we see a brother or sister in sin and we say, I need, I, need, I need to rebuke them on this. If our aim is not their restoration and repentance, then we're not doing rebuke as Jesus said. You following me? The aim is their eternal good. To lead them to repentance. Rebuke, though, is not the only response that we ought to have. In fact, it's not even the most important or the most common response. Friends, if you find yourself consistently and frequently rebuking other Christians, you probably need to examine your own heart. Rebuke is not the most important or even the most common response. What is the most common response among Christians? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the most important response. And that's where Jesus goes next. Look at verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Notice that Jesus does not say, if he repents and you test him and it's genuine, then you forgive him. He just says, if he repents, forgive him. This is a fact of life in the fallen world. Not only will we sin, but we will often be sinned against. If you're thinking about becoming a member of Midtown Baptist Church, one of the things that you can expect is that someone here will sin against you. That's what sinners do. So we should expect this. And when it occurs, we extend forgiveness. We apply the gospel. As those who have been forgiven by God, we must be willing to forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus says this has to have the ultimate priority in the church. Forgiveness has to be paramount. Rebuke is necessary sometimes. Forgiveness is necessary all the time. All the time in the Christian church. Notice the centrality of forgiveness in verse 4. If your brother sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Friends, that is a clear and powerful picture of what the Gospel calls us to be. The Gospel calls us to be quick to forgive, not slow. The Gospel calls us to believe the best about our brothers and sisters, not critically or cynically assume that they're just faking it. To believe the best and to forgive. Even if it's seven times in one day for the same sin, forgive. Forgive, Jesus says. Forgive them. Does that make you a little uncomfortable? As though you, your life is taking on some level of vulnerability in the name of loving another Christian? Does that sound like a high standard? Well, good, because it is. It's the high standard of the Gospel, friends. If you think to yourself when Jesus says, your brother sins against you seven times in one day and repents, you, seven times you forgive him. If you think no one in the world would ever do that, Jesus says precisely. That's the point. We live with this kind of Gospel-empowered love. It's the standard of the Gospel. As God forgave us in Christ, so also we must forgive. So notice that basic outline for dealing with sin in the life of the church. We have two basic responses. We rebuke in the hope of seeing repentance 
and we forgive when repentance is present. Both of those responses are necessary. Rebuke reminds us that sin cannot be ignored. It's like cancer. You've got to get it out. Rebuke reminds us that sin cannot be ignored. But forgiveness reminds us that sin will not have the final word. Those are the essential things in the life of a church. We are a Gospel people first and foremost. Or at least we ought to be. So the standard for our lives must be to pursue righteousness together, applying the Gospel at every step of the way. I'm not solely concerned about avoiding temptation in my life. I'm also concerned in being careful how I live with others so that they grow as well. This is our duty to one another as disciples. We pursue righteousness together. Like we said just a moment ago, this is a high standard, isn't it? It's a high standard. It's one of the reasons why we practice church membership, because it is a high standard. And we want to call one another up to that. It's a high calling from the Lord. How can anyone live this way? That's what you ought to be thinking at this point. What must we possess and display that enables us to live like this? Well, the second duty gives us the answer. Duty number two comes in verses 5 and 6. And here we see that disciples must encourage Christ-focused faith. I'm going to explain what that means. Disciples must encourage Christ-focused faith. You'll notice in verse 5 that the apostles ask Jesus to increase their faith. That may seem like a random request, but there's a connection here with verses 1 and 4. Pursuing righteousness together is a high calling. To rebuke and forgive is not an easy thing to do within the church. And I'll contend that the apostles sense the weight of that calling, which is why they ask the Lord to increase our faith. Jesus says, if your brother sins seven times, forgive him. And the apostles say, man, increase our faith then. Right? They, they need the Lord's work there. And on the one hand, this is a commendable request. It is always good to recognize our need to grow in faith. And it's always good to ask Christ to supply what we lack. Those are always good things. Those are commendable things. But on the other hand, there is a way to think about faith that actually puts the focus in the wrong place. There's a way to think about faith that focuses too much on us and not enough on the Lord Jesus. We get caught up in the amount of faith that we have. We get caught up in the perceived strength of our faith. And pretty soon we're spending all of our time in the name of faith thinking about ourselves and not focusing on the Lord. Instead of trusting in Christ, we slowly begin to trust in our faith. And friends, that's what I would say is happening here with the apostles in verse 5. They hear the high calling of discipleship and they get caught up in their own experience of faith. And they end up focusing too much on themselves. So notice Jesus' answer, which is both a rebuke and an encouragement. Verse 6, Jesus shifts their focus. And the Lord said to them, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What's that about? 
Jesus is telling the, the apostles, you're focused on the wrong thing. You're focused on the wrong thing. You're concerned with the amount of faith or with the strength of faith. And Jesus is saying, that's not the point. Even the smallest measure of faith can do remarkable things in the kingdom of God. In other words, don't get caught up in your experience of faith. Don't get locked into how your faith feels to you. Rather, remember that genuine faith, even in the smallest measure possible, genuine faith looks to what God can do, which is everything, and not to what you can do, which is nothing. Friends, this is always a trap when it comes to understanding faith. I grew up my whole life in the church, and I... I'm convinced that I never really understood what, what the pastor was talking about when he was talking about faith. It's not his fault. I was probably too busy drawing stuff in my bulletin. But this is always a trap when it comes to understanding faith. So it's important that we be clear. The strength of faith comes from its object, not its subject. To say it a different way, who you trust is more important than how you feel about your ability to trust. Who you trust is more important than how you feel about your ability to trust. So if you wake up in the morning and you say, man, my faith is so small, it's a mustard seed. Jesus would say, praise God, you're going to move mountains. That's why faith that focuses on Christ, even in the smallest measure, is able to do far more than what we could ask or imagine. That's the point of Jesus' image in verse 6. Does commanding trees to be uprooted and replanted sound impossible to you? Yes, of course it does. Do you know what else sounds impossible? Forgiving a brother or sister who sins against you seven times in one day. That sounds impossible too. How do you do it? Trusting in Christ. You don't do that by saying, I must need to get stronger. I must need to get more faith. Jesus comes in and says, yes, but not like that. Faith that relies on Christ, even in the smallest measure, is able to do remarkable, astounding things. Even things like forgiving someone who sins against you seven times in one day. How do you do that? Through faith. And even faith in the smallest measure can do remarkable things in God's eyes. So how does faith get stronger? Just told you all the ways that it doesn't get stronger. How does faith get stronger? How do we increase our faith, to use the Apostles' language? Surprisingly, we strengthen our faith by not focusing on our faith. You strengthen faith by not thinking about your faith. Faith grows the more we see Christ the more we treasure Christ, the more we rely on Christ, and the less we do those things in relationship to ourselves. Friends, this is why we preach the Gospel every Sunday at Midtown Baptist. This is why we so consistently try to remind you of Jesus in the songs that we sing, in the Scriptures we read, in the prayers we pray, and in the sermons we preach. It's because we're convinced, we're convinced That faith grows stronger the less we're thinking about ourselves and the more we're looking to Jesus. Faith gets stronger by not thinking about faith. So I'm going to say again what I have said in this pulpit now for nearly 10 years. Faith feeds on the Word of God. 
That's how faith gets stronger. Faith feeds on the Word of God because the Word of God gives us Christ. Listen, I may be a pastor, but my faith feels feeble most days. And if I focused on my experience of faith, there would be someone else preaching to you today. If I focused on my experience of faith, I would just give up. But that's why I need the Word of God, brothers and sisters. Because the Word gives me what I need the most. Not the encouragement to look inward, but the encouragement to just stop thinking about how I feel about my faith. And think about Christ. And who He is. And what He has done. The Bible gives me what I cannot give myself. Which is a greater vision of Christ in whom my faith resides. So if your faith seems feeble to you, I want you to do two things. One, be encouraged. You're not alone. If your faith feels feeble, be encouraged. You're not alone. You're in the right place. And then two, do the counterintuitive thing and stop thinking about your feeling of faith. Stop thinking about how you're doing. Focus on Christ through His Word and through prayer and you'll find that God is faithful to sustain you and to enable you to do far more than you can ask or imagine. And the strength that God gives to faith is a bit like the manna in the wilderness. You can't collect it for a whole week. You've got to get it each day. You've got to get it each day. So I'm glad you're here this morning. Tomorrow morning, open the Bible and read it. And ask God to give you what you can't give yourself. And along that line, this is also how you help a fellow Christian whose faith is weak. Talk more about Christ than you do about anything else. By all means, listen to how he or she is doing. Seek to understand their experience and their place in life. But when it comes time for you to talk, aim with all your might to talk about Jesus the most. To talk about what Christ has done. It's good to understand where a person is at. It's good to understand how they're feeling and what they're thinking. That kind of self-understanding is good to a degree. But for faith to grow, that self-understanding has to be followed with what is true about Christ. This is part of the mystery of the Gospel, friends. What is true about my identity in Christ is more powerful than how I feel. It's more powerful than what has happened to me. It's more powerful than what I am struggling against. In fact, who Christ is and who I am in Christ is the most real thing about me. That doesn't make other things unreal. It just means that they have to take their realness from the reality which is Christ in me. The hope of glory, as Paul says. Colossians. So as as you try to encourage another Christian, by all means, listen to them. Seek to understand them. But when the time comes to speak, speak first and foremost about Christ. That's how faith is strengthened. In fact, that's the duty of disciples. We must encourage Christ-focused faith. That's duty number two. The final duty of a disciple is there at the end, verses 7 and 10. We're going to close with this. Disciples must commit to humble servanthood. Disciples must commit to humble servanthood. These final verses give us the correct framework for thinking about faithfulness in the Christian life. 
Jesus uses an analogy involving a servant and a master. His point is going to become clear in verse 10, but the analogy is important to get there. So notice how Jesus builds his point. Verse 7, Jesus asks a rhetorical question that envisions a very unlikely scenario. Verse 7, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? So the imagined, the imagined situation is a role reversal where the servant becomes the master and the master becomes the servant. And Jesus' point is rather obvious. No master would do that. No matter how faithful the servant has been, he always remains the servant. And so verse 8 makes this rather plain. Will the master not rather say to his servant, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and then afterward you will eat and drink? That's the proper situation, isn't it? The servant remains in his role, which is to serve the master. Even at the end of the long day, he remains the servant. And that servant does, that, that service that he provides does not put the master in the servant's debt. This is key, friends. Notice verse 9. Does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Again, the answer is plain. No. The master doesn't thank the servant for fulfilling his role. Now, don't overread Jesus here. Don't overread him. He's not saying that those with authority can be rude and treat other people like dirt. And neither is he saying that God is dismissive towards his people with some kind of cold indifference. That's taking Jesus' analogy too far. Rather, Jesus' point is simply this. Faithfulness does not put the master in the servant's debt. The master is never indebted to the servant. Then comes the application, verse 10. So you also, remember he's talking to disciples, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. There are a couple of significant points to note from verse 10. First of all, we already said this, but we need to just make it plain. Faithfulness never puts Christ in our debt. Faithfulness never puts Christ in our debt. When we look out for others, when we resist temptation, when we rebuke and forgive our fellow Christians, when we have done all that we are commanded to do, even then, we have only done our duty. We've been faithful to God, praise the Lord, but faithfulness does not make Christ our servant. He is the Lord and we are the servants. He is the King and we are the subjects. He is the Master and we are the ones who are commanded. He's never in our debt. And that's good news, friends. That's good news. Only the Lord Jesus has the beautiful combination of goodness and power that enables Him to rule over all things for the glory of God and for our good. It is part of God's grace to us that Christ is never in our debt. It's part of God's grace to us. Because if we could do enough to put Him in our debt, if we could do enough to merit His good favor, then we could also do not enough to lose the good favor. You see, it's good news that He remains the Master and we remain the servant. 
That's why the gospel is good news. When you've done all that you can do, we're still only servants who stand, who stand by grace. Secondly, we ought to note that obedience is the standard for servants. Obedience is the standard for disciples. We could actually say it more strongly. Faithfulness is measured in obedience. It's measured in obedience. To be a faithful servant to Christ is to obey His commands. Listen to what Jesus says. When you have done all that you were commanded. Who's in charge? Jesus. What are we supposed to do? Obey Him. To do what He says. To be faithful to the Lord is to obey His Word by faith. Think of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It's, it's, I think it's being anticipated here in verse 10. What are we, the church, commissioned to do? Make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and teaching them to do what? Obey all that Jesus has commanded. There are many worrisome trends in the church today, but maybe the one that is most concerning is the downgrading of obedience. Faithfulness is measured in obedience, friends. And to call Christians to obey is not to slip into legalism. Of course, we don't believe that our obedience is the standard or the the basis of our righteousness before God. It's Christ's righteousness alone. But even still, saying that obedience is the standard is not calling the gospel into question and is certainly not being legalistic. Do you want to be faithful to Christ? Then obey His Word. And ask yourself, friends, is there an area of my life where I know right now I am not walking in obedience to the Word of God? And if there is, then God would say that faithfulness for you begins right there with repentance and obeying the Lord by faith. Our identity as servants, He's the Master, we're the servant, He's the King, we're the subject, that identity ought to wake us up to the centrality of obeying the Lord. I was talking with a guy recently who had never been baptized. And he was saying that he didn't think that that was a very important thing for him to do. And I could go through all sorts of biblical arguments about why he ought to be baptized. Romans chapter 6, all these things. But instead, I said to him, Jesus commands that you be baptized. So you ought to obey him. Right? Obedience, friends, is the standard for faithfulness in the church. That's what we ought to note from verse 10. The last thing we ought to note from verse 10 is we ought to see here the wonder of the gospel that, that shines from this verse. The wonder of the gospel. This is actually one of my favorite verses in all of Luke's gospel. Some people read verse 10 and think that Jesus sounds like a crank. That, he's, that He sounds like a miser. As though God only wants servile people who cower before Him. But nothing is further from the truth, friends. In the Gospel, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who's He given those blessings to? Us servants. In the Gospel, God shares with us the immeasurable riches of Christ, who is the Son of God. Indeed, in the Gospel, we become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Are we servants? Yes, but servants who have come to share in the riches of grace. So notice how this changes our perspective 
on obedience. We obey Christ, but not to put Him in our debt, not to earn His favor. We've been given all that we have by grace. Rather, we obey Christ because we've been captured by the wonder that is His gospel. And the power of that gospel is so incredible, it creates willing obedience in the hearts of His people. Friends, people obey tyrants, but it's not commendable. He gets their obedience out of fear. Jesus gets His obedience out of love. And that's why the gospel is wonderful. We don't obey because we're fearful of God casting us into hell. We obey because God has saved us from hell and therefore my life is His. And I do what He says because that's where life is found. In obeying God. And so the end result is this remarkable reshaping of duty in the Christian life. I told you at the beginning, duty has gotten a bad rap. This is one of the things that I wanted to accomplish in this sermon, was to get you to think differently about duty as a Christian. It's our duty to commit ourselves to humble servanthood, where we devote our lives to obeying Christ. But here's, here's the point I've been trying to make. That kind of duty is not drudgery. It's not putting you in shackles or chains before God. That kind of duty is freedom. It's life. To give yourself to obeying Christ and walking in His ways. That kind of duty is not drudgery, it's delight. For in Christ we don't have a taskmaster who begrudgingly responds to us. We have a Savior who willingly gave His life so that we would have life. We have an older brother who took on the poverty of our flesh so that we would get the riches of His glory. Brothers and sisters, give me that duty any day of the week and I'll take it. Because that kind of duty is life. That kind of obedience leads to freedom. It's a duty that satisfies the soul beyond anything this world can offer. At the end of the day, we get to say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what you commanded. And that's good. Aren't you glad that Christianity is not simply a me and Jesus kind of faith? I'm so glad. It's so kind of God to not only save us from hell, but also to unite us together with the family of God in the Gospel. Our duty is to pursue righteousness together, so I pray that God would make us a holy people. Our duty is to encourage Christ-focused faith, so I pray that God would make us a church full of encouragers. That would be great. And our duty is to commit ourselves to humble servanthood. So may God make us people who are quick to obey with joy in our hearts. And may God do all of these things to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, even the Lord Jesus. Amen. That's good news, friends. Let's pray. Father, we feel the weight of this wonder in that we are both the servants of God and the sons of God in Christ Jesus. That You are certainly the Lord of all things and You are our Father in Christ and in the Gospel. It's staggering, Lord, to be captured by such a beautiful good news. We pray, Father, that our response today would be glad-hearted obedience. 
We pray, Father, that our response today would be to encourage another Christian in the faith by pointing them to Christ. We pray, Father, that our response today would be a renewed desire to grow in holiness and that we would do so together. Father, would You help us today? Would You help us to embrace this wonderful truth that we are both the servants of Christ and the sons of God? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.